I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. You know how they say, never meet your heroes? Well, I can tell you from experience that that is generally very good advice, unfortunately. There was this one time where I met this food writer I looked up to, you know, early in my career, and they basically said to me, you really can't do what I do. (laughs) To be fair, it was not mean, they were not being malicious, and they were technically correct. But, you know, still. And then there was the other time where I went to go see this band I loved, and they straight up made fun of me from the stage. Anyway, the point is, if you idolize someone, probably lots of people idolize that person, and too much adoration really has a way of making for awkward situations. But... If you happen to idolize cookbook author extraordinaire Dory Greenspan, fear not that your affections are misplaced because she is, in fact, one of the loveliest people on earth. She's written over a dozen cookbooks, including collaborations with some of the greats like Julia Child, and chefs Danielle Ballou and Pierre Hermé, before becoming so beloved herself that she's a group of fans who gather online to cook her recipes every week now for over a decade. Her books are simply titled Baking with Dory or Dory's Cookies. And did I mention she's one of the loveliest people on earth? So we wanted to spend some time with her, a whole episode, hearing about how she got started in food. It's a great story. How she comes up with her thousands of always delicious recipes and all kinds of stuff in between. So hey, Dory, it is so, so great to see you. Thanks so much for making time from beautiful Paris. I'm so happy to be with you. I guess I get to say, bonjour. Yeah, you can say bonjour anytime. It's melodious coming out of your mouth. Oh, it's really good to be here. And thank you for figuring out the time difference. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to catch you in your pajamas. But Okay, so I don't usually start interviews by you know truly fawning over my guests, but you have been a legend for as long as I can remember. You've written over a dozen cookbooks. You've won trunkfuls of awards. You were an early internet food celebrity. So I figured, you know, without actually knowing you and knowing your work for as long as I have, I figured, you know, I think I just assumed that you must have just loved cooking from a young age, knew that would be your career. But then I read that when you were a kid, you actually burned your parents' kitchen down and didn't cook again until you were married. What happened? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I don't think if someone had said to me, even before I burned my parents' kitchen down, <laughs> that food would have anything to do with my life, I it, it just was so far out of any realm that I could imagine, hmm. partially because of the way I grew up and what was presented to me as possibilities, but also because it was so long ago, food was barely a possibility for I think most of us. So I was, however old you are in seventh grade, what are you, 12, 13? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was out with friends. We were just walking up and down the street, Susan Brooklyn, um, before it was hip and groovy. And we got hungry and thought, okay, we'll make something to eat. Okay. And we decided on French fries, frozen French fries. Okay. I don't know. I mean, you put three normally smart kids together in a room. What made us think that frozen (laughs) French fries had to be boiled in oil? (laughs) Box of French fries, put a pot up of oil to boil. It's a tongue twister. And thought, oh, water boils quickly when you put a cover on it. I'll put a cover on the pot of oil. Exactly. Yeah. So when I lifted, when I lifted the lid, yeah. I mean, it was actually it was almost beautiful until I realized how dangerous it was because you know those flames were coming all around the edge of the pot and up. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, When the fire department came. um, They, I got such a talking to, and my parents were out babysitter in the house for my two little brothers, right? They came home. The fireman insisted on waiting to tell my parents what I had done. Are you serious? Yeah. They stuck around to rat you out? Yeah, they stuck around. It was a quiet night in the firehouse, I guess. So when my parents came home, they found the whole, you know, all of us um, sitting on the front stoop 
fireman behind us. I can't. Now as a grown-up, when I look back at it, I can't imagine what that was like for my parents. Sure. And, yeah, the kitchen, the one that had just been redone. Yeah, that kitchen. (laughs) For weeks we had, you know, a soot-covered ceiling with the fireman's handprints on them. Yeah, and so when I wrote my first cookbook, my brother said to me, are you going to tell the story of your kitchen, of burning down the kitchen? I thought, I don't think that's a good start. Who would trust me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It took me until, I think I told the story in Around My French Table, which came out in 2010. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it took, yeah, it took me a long time to come around to fessing up. (laughs) So how did you come to your love of, I mean, thankfully, I mean, in all seriousness, I can totally imagine how that would have been terrifying for everyone, and I'm glad everyone was safe. Um, But then how did you come to your love of cooking? If you were 11 years old and you're like, okay, I'm not walking in that place ever again. I don't think, you know, after a few years, maybe even after a shorter amount of time, the story wasn't that important. Sure. It was something that happened. I was, I felt stupid. I was glad everyone was safe. I was sorry I had done it. Right, right, right. Right. It was only when I, when food became my life that I thought, this is funny. But, um, so I got married when I was 19 years old. Mm, Okay. Um, yeah, I was a junior in college. And Michael, my husband, still my husband all Mm -hmm. these years later, um, Michael had a job. I was in, college. We had very little money and there weren't all these, you know, deliveries. So I knew, you know, we had to eat home, but I also wanted to cook. I had this Mm. kind of romantic notion of what it would be to have my own house. I got, I was living with my parents when we got married, so I had never lived alone. Mm -hmm. And I went from living at home with my parents to living at home with Michael. And the idea of having our own place, of having friends come visit us, of having people around the table. It was some kind of Norman Rockwellish idea that I had. Mm. And I discovered that I loved it. I loved cooking. I loved having friends. And because I was 19, I was the first of my friends to get married. And mm-hmm. so everybody came to visit us. And I I just, there was something, and there still is so many years later, something about making things, about creating something from very basic ingredients that excited me then that I, I, it's still, it's still what motivates me. Hmm. I also, you know, it was, so it was the 1970s and I felt like everyone I knew was cooking. Hmm. We were living in Manhattan. At that point, all of my friends cooked. And it was so much fun to have friends over for dinner, to talk about – this was – I mean, I didn't grow up with any of this – to talk about what we were making, to have somebody say, oh, you know, on Ninth Avenue, there's a shop where you can get pâté. It's just like I had in France. Or you can buy beans at the – and I have a notebook from that time with recipes from – all of my friends that we traded back and forth, handwritten in this in this notebook. Some of them were great. Some I'd never, you know, I'll never make again. But I remember it as a time where we all cared about food and wanted to cook, to cook well, and to cook for one another. That's so interesting because that's so different than what I have always assumed, have always been told, you know, like, you know, the story of American food in the big picture, obviously, like specific communities, families had very different experiences. But the big picture has been, you know, food in the post-war era was very much frozen, canned, because, hey, for the first time, we didn't have to be in the kitchen. And women especially didn't have to be in the kitchen. So we had all that these That was what my mother said over and over again. And we had a freezer filled with boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And But like the idea that, oh, in the 70s, you were, and you and your friends... It was sort of like this proto-foodism. Oh, that's interesting. So how did it become a career for you? How did you go from that, like this sort of like thing that you love talking about with your friends? To... So it became, it could never have become, I don't think, I, it did probably for others, but 
it wouldn't have been for me. I don't think it could have become a career for me just then. There weren't mm. really, it was still the time where, was it, I don't know if it was home ec people who were doing food, but it wasn't, I, I couldn't have been, I would have loved to have been, I couldn't have been Paula Wolfert. I couldn't have gone off to Morocco mm. on my own and talked to the Moroccan explored, right. and explored. That, I, I couldn't, I didn't have the personality. I didn't know, I didn't know you could do such things. Sure, sure, um, sure. My mother wanted me to be a teacher and I got a fabulous job in the early 70s at a research center and I was working on a grant to study aging and I got so interested in it that I went to school and got a all but dissertation for a degree in gerontology and that's mm. what I thought I was going to do you know it was it was exciting for women to be professionals and food sure. wasn't really there were restaurant critics there was you know there were the women's pages in the newspapers there right. was gourmet magazine um and food and wine. And it wasn't, when we look at what we have today, there's so much. There wasn't that much, and it wasn't much of sure. a field. And so I got stuck on my dissertation. I always say it's the one deadline I didn't meet. I never finished it. Um, I had the kid, Joshua, and when it came time for me to go back to work, I was just dreading it. And Michael said, why don't you try and get a job as a baker? You love it so much, and I really did love it. I would come home from school, mm. and I would bake. I would cook dinner. I would spend all weekend doing what we now call, you know, project cooking or project baking. Mm -hmm. It was the thing that made me happiest, but it never looked like it could be a career. And Michael said, just try. Just see what you can do. And you tried. Yeah, I got a job, um, and I got fired a month later. <laughs> <laughs> I got fired for good reason. I got bored. You know, I was a home baker. I was like, you know, looking at cookbooks. I was changing mm -hmm. things all the time. And I was in charge of making the restaurant's signature dessert, this chocolate cake that okay. was a Simca Beck recipe, actually. And I got tired of making it. So I changed it and didn't tell anybody and sent it up to the dining room. <laughs> Well, I just thought, you know, how, do, wait, I, how did you how, how did you change it? How did you okay, change that? So it was that. the cake was called the Doris, I think, and it had whiskey soaked raisins, and I think it had did it have walnuts? I don't remember. But it had ground nuts, and mm -hmm. I changed the nuts to ground pecans, and I changed the raisins to <laughs> it was a chocolate cake. I changed the raisins to Armagnac soaked prunes. Isn't that delicious? Good? Right? Delicious. Yeah. But I, 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 I can sort of see their point. <laughs> oh, you're not kidding. I got fired. <laughs> I mean, really. I got fired for creative insubordination. Sure. <laughs> I'm now proud of that. But it, I mean, really. I can't believe I did that. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, maybe you did set your path uh, in that moment then because you were always going to be a tinkerer. You were always going to be, well, if that's good, maybe we can make it better. Only looking uh, back. Yes, you're right. <laughs> We'll be back with more of our conversation with Dory Greenspan, including stories from her years working with Julia Child. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. 
Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com. And promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending time today with one of the greatest cookbook authors of my lifetime, Dory Greenspan. Let's get back to it with her. You have certainly a lot of, you had tons of um, viewpoints into professional kitchens. Yes. For lots of reasons. Um, and eventually you became a writer and a cookbook author, like we said, over, over a dozen books. And all your books now are Dory's Cookies, Baking with Dory. Only one name necessary. You're <laughs> the Shakira of cookbook authors. <laughs> But early in your career, you've written books with, as a co-writer, some of the biggest names in food, and particularly French food. Of course, we all want to hear about how you came to write a book with Julia Child. You know, I have been so lucky. And, and it takes luck. You can be incredibly talented. You can be the best at what you do. But I'm convinced that... You need a little bit of luck to meet the right people, to get sure. the, you know, to be in the right place. Um, I didn't go to cooking school, and I always felt that I was really lucky because I learned to cook standing next to really great chefs. For a few years, I wrote regularly for Elle magazine, and so I got to meet great French chefs, and I mm. loved working with them. But there was, other than that, there seemed to be no opportunity. And then there was, <laughs> there was the chance to work with Julia Child. I mean, that's like going from, you know, zero to, to a thousand in a, in, in a second. Sure. Um, do you want to know how I met her? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so it was through Jeff Drummond, who was her producer at public television. Um, okay. And I had just written my first book, Sweet Times. It was 1991. And there was going to be a program at Boston University. And several cookbook authors were going to demo recipes. And he asked me if I wanted to do this. And oh, cool. I, I wanted God, what to a moment. Well, I wanted to say no because I was, I was so scared. You know, I thought mm. if you're a writer, that means you get to sit in your little room and never have to see anybody and never – I mean, I was the kid who didn't raise her hand and sat in the back of the class. But I knew that this book was my – you know, it was like my baby and I had, to, I had to get it out into the world. And I said yes. And we went up to Boston and I, I was the last demo. And <laughs> – before me was Jacques Pépin and Julia <laughs> Child. On. So we had Come Jacques on. and Julia and me. And um, I oh. they made you bat clean up after them. Oh, I can't. You know, even to, my, my heart's going pitter patter. My voice is like my throat is. Even when I think about that, I did the demo. I had chosen the easiest. I thought, okay, just as long as you can get through it, you know, do the simplest thing you can do. And I did a recipe that's in my first book called 15-Minute Magic. And it consists of putting everything in a food processor and pressing a button. (laughs) Okay. Not very interesting, but, you know, I thought... (laughs) Literally. Right? I mean, as long as I didn't... 15 minutes of your... That was it. You know, but as long (laughs) as I didn't chop my finger off, I thought it'll all be okay. And and when I finished it, (laughs) Julia came up to me. And she... Oh, Julia. I mean... What a, what a, she was amazing. She came up to me, put her arm around me, and she said, That was wonderful. I'd like to get to know you better. We're all having, um, we're all having dinner at, um, it was Rebecca Alcid's house. She was the director of the program. She's making dinner for all of us, and I would like you to sit with me. Oh my God. Pitter patter, pitter patter. And, that night, I had dinner with Julia, a little table for four. I'm sorry, whoever you two people were who were there, but I don't feel <laughs> other sure people. sure there were I, other humans involved. I don't, I don't remember but, you. I had eyes yeah, yeah. only for Julia. And she, Julia off camera is the same as Julia 
on camera. There's there's just Julia. She's just smart and she's funny and she's caring and she's hilarious. She said to me over dinner, um, you know that Saturday Night Live skit that Dan Aykroyd did, the one where he pretends he's me? That's the one. Yeah. I had never seen it. Okay. S- never. <laughs> Julia got up and did it for me. <laughs> She's Wait, she did she did Dan Aykroyd's impression of yes, herself. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, and and we kept in touch after that. It was funny. I was in my office in in New York, and I have a the one wall is all a bulletin board, and I have you know stuff pinned up on it. And I passed a postcard. Julie was a great postcard writer, and mm. I passed a postcard that she had sent to me after this, saying how much she had. Loved meeting me. And we kept in touch. We kept in touch. And then when she was going to do the Baking with Julia program, I was asked to do the book, but I was working for the Food Network, and I said, no. I said, I'm I'm essentially, I'm in showbiz now. I said, I'm not writing any more books, no. And six months later, I called and said, who's going to write your book? And they hadn't found anybody, (laughs) and that was... That was one of my luckiest days, I think. Mm. And so you wrote that book with her. Yeah, and I got to see, because that book was Julia as the host to 26 bakers and pastry chefs, Mm -hmm. I got an amazing baking course by working with these chefs, watching what they were doing, taking their recipes apart and putting them back together for a home baker. Um, and I got to work with Julia. Oh, that's amazing. So this is something I want to talk to you about because you started as a home baker. Your recipes are so well known for how well they work among Thank you. other, you know, wonderful characteristics, deliciousness, creativity. But they're always known for working for home bakers. So when you're working with high level pastry chefs who have you know, decades of training, very precise techniques. Sometimes you need to do this exactly this way for it to turn out, different equipment. And particularly when you're working with French pastry chefs who are, you know, work with different ingredients. Exactly. Um, you've had to master this art of sort of translation into a home kitchen. And you have worked with Pierre Hermé. Yes. Who, actually, for those of us who don't know him, why don't you introduce who Pierre Hermé is to our listeners if, if they don't know him? So, Pierre, I, w- I was just reading a magazine here in, in Paris, and it had something by Pierre, and they just said, the best pastry chef in the world. That's what they said. Yeah, yeah, it was very simply. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, Pierre is a, oh, no, I've forgotten, fourth or fifth generation pastry chef. He always oh, said that. that, yes, it was just in his DNA to be a pastry chef. And extraordinarily gifted, technically, but also he has such broad interests. He's someone who is in the world and sees things and art, music, um, travel, landscapes, and sees a way to turn that into flavors and textures. And he's here in Paris and famous for his flavor combinations. When I met him, he talked about the architecture of taste. And I've always loved thinking about that. I'm not sure I really understand everything about it. (laughs) But when I look at what he's made and look at the way flavors build on one another Mm -hmm, and the way mm -hmm, textures mm -hmm. change – I think, yeah, that's 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 like architecture. Yeah, he is truly. I mean, I mean, in some ways of describing him, the best pastry chef in the world. Certainly, one of the most influential, um, definitely of my lifetime, um, and many of our lifetimes. Uh, and one thing, tell me if this is true, because this is I might be misunderstanding this, but he's also known for releasing like a line or a series of pastries in a similar sort of flavor combination family every year, almost like a fashion show. Like fall well, 24 is going to be the year of blah, blah, blah. And he, he'll have 
different pastries using these same flavors. So he started sometime in the, uh, I think he did this in the 90s. He saw a connection between high fashion and high pastry. And the, the pastry chefs were were not always doing seasonal pastries. Oh, there'd be a strawberry mm-hmm. tart and you'd have strawberries. But he saw pastry as seasonal and he saw it as fashion, as a way of putting together a collection. And in fact, for a few years, he actually did a pastry version of a fashion show that ended mm-hmm. as fashion shows often end with um, a bridal gown. He ended with... <laughs> You know, a little girl whose name was Madeline, I think, um, coming out with him with his the last of the, the collection. He changed the way we think about pastry. And yes, so he he's most famous, I think, for the Isfahan, which is a combination mm-hmm. of rose, lychee, and raspberry. And it started and as a macaron. The most copied thing in the world. And uh, you I'll see eat every it coffee everywhere, on Earth everywhere, everywhere. It's incredible. He has made it as a loaf cake. He's made it as ice cream. He's made it as pâte de fruits, you know, fruit jelly. He's made mm-hmm. it as a jam. And with each change, it's different. The family of flavors remains. But because it's a cake or it's ice cream, the way you experience it is different. It's very – I'm very excited about what he does and – I love that so many people have worked with him and have gone on. I think this is what's so wonderful in in food that m- chefs don't work alone and they sure. train people and they go off and become their own heads of families. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I was about to ask um, a question. How do you work with someone who is so um, – for lack of a better word, was going high end as Pierre and translate that for the home cook. But I kind of feel like you just sort of did that. Like your way of explanation and your way of um, sharing this idea in, in a way that respects it, in a way that really is engaged with it, interested in it, honors it, but also is not pretentious in any way. Um, I think that's very unique to you. I think that's really wonderful about you. I, You know, thank you. I, I don't know. I sometimes think that because I'm always anxious. Even even now, after so many years of experience, I'm always worried. So with Julia, I was worried because I knew that I was writing the book, but everybody would think it was Julia. So it had to be it had to be something that Julia would be really proud of. With Pierre, best pastry chef in the world. And I was translating his recipes and also translating his language because it was all in French. Mm-hmm. So I think that that anxiety actually helped focus, okay, everybody has to be able to understand this. I think the only reason anybody, whether you're collaborating with someone or you're writing your own books or you're working you know, online, the only reason to write a recipe is to make sure that somebody else can make it and succeed and feel great about it. Mm-hmm. And... That's what I kept in mind. Yeah. But not everyone knows that. I mean, you know, I know a little something about how cookbooks are made. Not everyone, <laughs> where not everyone feels like that is their number one. Um, that's what drives them. That's their prime directive. Um, sometimes people do it for lots of different reasons. Um, and for ego or, you know, to show off what they can do or you know, hey, this looks great. And so, you know, people will buy this book because it looks amazing. You know, this food looks amazing online. So people want to buy my food. And and when it comes to your work, it, it does always feel like you have us in mind and you want us to pull whatever it is out of the oven or take what it is out of the pan and just, you know, just be made happy by it. Thank you. Um, you know, when, when Julia was traveling, um, with the book and the TV series, she would call me every day at the end of the day and tell me what people had made and what she had done and where who she had seen, or maybe it's whom she had seen. And she <laughs> she would always end by saying, and every recipe worked. For her, that was so important. That was mm-hmm. maybe the most important thing. And 
I think if you had asked her, she would say the same thing. And maybe, maybe that, maybe I learned that from her. I learned so much from mm-hmm. her. But we write cookbooks for other people to to use and to take pride in what they do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. You want people to feel proud. Yeah. You totally want people to feel proud. Okay, so when it comes to writing your books then, aside from, you know, this very strong sense of serving the reader, you know, certainly you have to be excited and interested. So I'm curious about what inspires you and what your creative process is. 14 books, again, some in partnership with others, mm-hmm. so maybe the recipes were theirs originally or, or, or something like that, but plenty of your own. Um, and you come by your recipes in lots of different ways. Tell me the story about your chicken in a pot, which was I think was the cover recipe on um, around my French table. It, yeah, it was. So chicken in a pot had had lots of lots of grandparents, lots of lots of. <laughs> um, so the original when when I first started cooking at home, I would make Richard Olney's chicken with forty cloves of garlic. Do you know the recipe? Mm. I I've heard was that original to him or so Richard Olney is this um oh, thank you. was an American um writer who moved to France and sort of famously became a little bit of like a like sort of styled himself as sort of a French hermit right like he kind of lived I didn't himself. know that until after the books yes yes exactly oh, okay yeah yeah, yeah he like until... lived by himself with like a cave full of wine <laughs> And just wrote these like magnificent books on French cuisine and like would publish them in America. But yeah, and so very, very forty cloves di- of garlic. Yeah, very different kinds of books because the recipes were written in a very it, they were narratives, you know, where yeah, they're yeah, right, right, right. right? Um, and this was a recipe in which you cooked chicken until it was really, really tender, soft, falling off the bone, with forty cloves of garlic that just got soft and sweet and spreadable. You the cloves were in mm. their um do we say skin? Yeah they were whole whole yeah, yeah, cloves. Sure. Yeah. Their, yeah, skins, and yeah. that was that was a famous recipe back then. I think James Beard also did a ver- many people did versions, but I came to it mm-hmm. there. And so when I was thinking about chicken, that was part of it. I also – Antoine Vesterman, who had a bistro in Paris many years ago, did chicken in a pot. And I loved the look of it. And I also, when I was thinking about it, remembered this very wonderful experience, very unusual one that I had had in Paris in the 70s. I was writing a postcard in English. woman saw me in a cafe. She said, oh, you speak English. My niece wants to speak English. Would you come for dinner tonight? (laughs) Unheard of. And I said, yes. I was alone. Um, I said, sure. And she, I will remember the carousel horse that she had in her living room. It took up the entire space. But this is how French people live. <laughs> she made a chicken in a pot. And I, I can, I, every time I say it and think about it, I can see it and I can smell it. It was in an oval copper pot. The chicken filled the entire pot. It was mm. a, a copper pot and the chicken was almost the same color as the burnished oh, wow. copper. It was beautiful. And I always loved the idea of this chicken that that lived that lived inside this beautifully made pot and i think it's the mm. only recipe that has a flour and water dough that you make to seal it's a very old french technique to seal a pot with so you put this the lid dough on. you make this dough you put it on the side of the pot you press the lid into it and it bakes around the lid and it makes it so it fully seals it a fully sealed pot and um that's that's what i wanted to do with chicken in a pot and that recipe you know, the chicken it's you know we always talk about crispy skin chicken doesn't have that it's just it's it's almost like my grandmother's friday night chicken in that you know first she used it to make soup and then she it's very mm-hmm. it's a very tender chicken but it t- because it's sealed the aromas when you open that pot they're just dizzying they're they're haunting 
Um, mm. It's a very, in some ways, for me, a very romantic dish. It's also a very practical dish. And it's what I love about it, and it's what I love about so many of the things that, that I make. You can make it 10 different ways. You probably could make it 30 different ways. But I love a recipe that you can play around with, that you can use what you have, that you can say, oh, you know, I have lemons. Wouldn't that be nice if I did it with, oh, I could do it with dill. Oh, I could. I love mm-hmm, recipes mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. And that's one of them. Sure. Yeah. It's like it becomes a sort of foundation and you can sort of build whatever you want. But, you know, I think inspiration, memories are inspirations. Walking down the street and, you know, travel is inspiration, seeing new ingredients, um, tasting something and not being able to get the recipe for it. And so wanting to make it and, and, and you know, trying it at home, trying to recreate that taste memory. We're spending this hour with one of America's favorite culinary authors, Dory Greenspan. More coming up. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending this episode talking with beloved cookbook author Dory Greenspan, a truly delightful human who's inspired some of the most devoted fans in the world. Let's get back to it with her. How did your relationship with France start? Now, you lived there part of the year. Obviously, we've talked about a lot of your experiences with yeah. French food and, and working with French chefs. How did your relationship with France start? How did you become so enamored of it and its cuisine? Do you know, it was... It was physical. I've never had this experience. I had never had the experience before, and I've never had it again since. Michael and I came to, well, I'm here in France, so I can say came to France um, shortly after we were married. And I put my foot down on the sidewalk and thought, uh, you know, this is is where I belong. This is home. Hmm. I've never had that feeling again. And I just did everything I possibly could to get back. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started to write, I would propose f- stories about France. When I started to cook, I cooked with a French, you know, slant. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just, I just fell in love with it. And it's been twenty-five years that we've been back and forth. Parisians. Like living there, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I know that that is obviously an important part of your life. It's an important part of your career. The other side of your sort of cooking identity, I guess, that you're most known for are really kind of very classic, homey American sweets, cookies. Yeah. I mean, you have literally a whole book called Dory's Cookies, but, and you had a, you had a cookie shop. Right. With the kid. No longer the kid. The kid. (laughs) <laughs> and no longer a shop, which, you know, I'm right. sure you lament, you know, the, the 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 loss of your baby into the wonderful uh, man. I, I lament the loss of the shop because it was so good. 
but uh, but you know cookies like cookies and brownies and things like that um and another one of your classic like iconic recipes is like the, your jam cookie uh the classic jammers yeah how'd you come up with that do you know i dreamed like that's that like cook- bake sale that's like that's like you know we go from this like really Parisian French high pastry sort of side of your brain <laughs> and then the you know sidewalk serendipitous meeting of the woman who brings you home to serve you the most gorgeous French chicken and then like one of your most famous recipes is like the total like ultimate bake sale classic of the jam cookie <laughs> you're right it's funny I hadn't thought about just how different these things are and, and how different the experiences that that the experiences that inspired them um, were but actually the jammer was born in Paris um, <laughs> okay fine fine <laughs> um, and I <laughs> but I have made them for bake sales so in fact I oh, just yeah, there you go. yeah I, in fact I just I just gave the recipe to someone to use for a fundraiser. So yeah, so it's a bake sale cookie. You got it. Um, But I I dreamed it. I dreamed it. I went to Mm. sleep in Paris and I woke up with the jammer. I saw it fully formed. It was... Us, it is. It was. It was your Athena. It, it just came from <laughs> right, just your, out of yeah. my, <laughs> yeah. out of my head. Um, yeah, it was a, a a vanilla cookie with jam in the center and crunchy streusel all around it. And I was so excited. I mean, I, I you probably too dream. I mean, you dream about food, right? Uh, if I can sleep enough to dream these days, I. <laughs> I feel like Daddy, I can... <laughs> more water. Yeah, that's not that doesn't pay no, for that a beautiful dream world. Yeah. That doesn't give you enough extended time to come up with a cookie. But um, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about food all the time, and I often dream about it. But this, yeah, this was I should have called it the Athena cookie. Where were you then? <laughs> I think classic jammers is probably a more sellable a sellable name. <laughs> Certainly for a bake sale, but yeah. I, it just came to me. I made it the following day. I brought it. I was so excited that I called Pierre and Hermé and I said, I want you to taste something. And I ran over and gave him the cookie to taste. Perfect, he said. It's perfect. Uh, that, what's that, that sound was, like in French? What's it sound like in French when a pastry chef says, it's perfect? C'est parfait. Love it. Oh, my God. It's even better than perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was really excited. But, I mean, it's exciting. I think creating a recipe, getting something that you really like. You know, you're working at it. You're working at it. You have ideas. You're changing things. And then when you get what you like, it's always it's that it's, – it's the, it's the same. It's the same every time. It's the same great feeling. And that doesn't get old. It's like, you know, it's like solving – people are, you know, are always posting their Wordle results. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's – is it the Wordle of food? I don't know. That's silly. It's more than that. It's more <laughs> than that. You were kind of the Wordle of food. You were kind of the Wordle – well, meaning like – so earlier I called you one of the first internet food celebrities. And what I meant was that, you know, back before internet fandoms were, you know, a massive – sort of cultural force they are now. I think it was, when was it, like 2005 or something like that? There was a fan group of yours called Tuesdays with Dory. They still who, exist. Oh, my God. I mean, they're, that Tuesdays with Dory is, you know, in high school, <laughs> uh, almost, almost ready for college. Uh, and these were folks who made your food, just made your food every Tuesday and posted it for one another. What did you think of that when you heard of it? And... You know, it was How in a, touch are you with them? It was, it was a little later than that because they baked all the way through. I mean, they're they're so amazing. They baked through um, baking from my home to yours, which has I don't know three hundred recipes. Amazing, <laughs> and you know, it was such early days. I mean, Lori Woodward who I've never met, wrote 
I guess she sent me an email. How did we communicate that? It must have been an email, of course. And she said that she had just gotten the book and she was not a baker, but she thought she could learn to bake if she baked through this book. Would it be okay if she and two friends just baked and put it, the, you know, put it on their blogs, put what they did? I said, you know, I, I didn't know. I spoke to my editor. She said, well, that sounds like a good idea. We had no idea what this would become. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And, you know, to see, now we take it for granted. You know, we're on Instagram or we're blogging Mm -hmm. and we're looking at pictures of recipes from cookbooks all the time. But as the author, having grown up not with the internet, having, you know, learned to type on a IBM Selectric. Um, <laughs> to be in touch like this was uh, the first time I saw a recipe that I had worked on on the internet. I cried. I called Michael mm. into the office and I said, look at this. And I just burst into tears. I had no... It was such a thrill to see people making something that I had worked on. Sure. And we're back, you know, we're back to that same feeling of, of what you want people to, to get from a recipe. And here I could actually see it. It was remarkable. I still think mm. it's remarkable. No, it's amazing. You know, it's funny. Even <laughs> uh, I, I will feel that even, you know, two degrees removed for someone else. Like I, I was on the subway the other day and I saw someone reading a book written by, I wouldn't even say it's a friend of mine, but someone I just know, like actually someone I've interviewed for this show, um, reading her book. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like I was so happy for her. Yeah. (laughs) And like, oh my God, if only I were, you know, if I could only could tell Priya Parker that I just saw someone and like, yeah, it's a bestseller. Like literally hundreds of thousands of people have read that book. Um, But there is something so remarkable about doing this work that is very solitary, right? In its conception, in its execution, in its practice. Um, But seeing it take a life in the world, I think that that has to be such a thrill. I still, it still touches me. And um, I don't think I'll ever get over it. Mm-hmm. So have you like made cameos? Have you have you baked something and posted it to Tuesdays with Dory or have you? Oh, so I, I still, you know, I see people posting on Tuesdays on Instagram and I'll respond. And sometimes I actually get to meet people. There was also a French Fridays with Dory when Around My French Table came out. And um, I met about 10 of those cooks. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting to have this way of communicating. It can also be, I mean, it's a million other things, but um, this this connection is, I find it remarkable. Yeah. It's got to be, yeah. yeah it's got to be such a, again, and it's not yours, right? You don't have to own it. It doesn't have to feel like, oh, you you need to control it. It's just knowing the people who are out there enjoying this thing, feeling the pride that you talked about wanting them to feel, feeling the happiness um, around their tables that you talked about wanting people to feel. I started a group on Facebook called Bake and Tell, and there are 7,000 bakers on it. And it's wonderful to see that I, I think this is I think there's something about bakers, but people pop on, they ask one another questions, they answer them, they help one another, they share recipes. I think that's, you know, it's a very, it's a very sweet corner of the internet. Mm. So um, earlier you said you'd actually gotten quite close to a PhD in gerontology. Is there ever a part of you that wonders, what if, what if you'd finish that instead of? No. No, I am, what I always feel is incredibly grateful that I found this life Mm -hmm. completely by surprise. I mean, this was not, as I said to you, as you know, there's no way I could have imagined this. I couldn't have dreamed it and then worked so hard to get it. I feel like this 
this was luck. This was a gift. This was... I'm lucky. Yeah. It's even more bold out of the blue than the classic jammers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dory. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you, and really, especially today. I love talking to you always, and especially today. Dory Greenspan is the author of 14 cookbooks, including the best-selling Baking with Dory, Everyday Dory, Dory's Cookies, and Around My French Table. Dory has literally been a part of our show since the beginning, so there are a lot of Dory interviews and recipes to go check out on our website, SplendidTable.org. And, you know, let me just say this. A zillion years ago, I was asked to help judge a cookbook tournament for the website Food52, and I had to write a review for Dory's book, Around My French Table. And I looked it up the other day to get ready for this, and let me read you a little part of the write-up. Cooking from it was a joy. The fresh tuna, mozzarella, and basil pizza was both chic and comfortable, like dressing up for an evening in your living room. The milky roundness of the cheese and the tuna's silky texture blend into one another alongside crisp, dissolving bites of puff pastry, ingeniously flattened to a crust. The unexpected beet salad, dressed with lime juice, honey, and dill, brings earthiness outside for a little afternoon in the sun. And I was proud to serve the rice pudding to the greatest lover of rice pudding that I know. This isn't a cookbook of French cuisine exactly, but rather a highly personal collection of recipes, many from Dory's Parisian friends and neighbors. It's a document of decades of cooking for and with loved ones. And it shows. Every time I looked up a recipe, I ended up reading the next four because I loved living for that moment in her little neighborhood. So we'll end this episode here, hoping that you also enjoyed spending time in Dory Greenspan's neighborhood. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made each week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Additional thanks this week to Gary O'Keefe and Marketplace's New York Bureau and Plink Studios in Paris. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios.